Who are you? How do you think about yourself? Who do you want to be? And how do you want others to view you? All of these questions relate to the broad topic of personal identity, an issue that has never been more relevant than it is today in our culture. In my interview today, I'm talking with Brian Rosner about how a cultural obsession with identity impacts us as Christians and how we should think about that through the lens of the Bible. Brian serves as the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and is the author of many books, including How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be with you. So I think it's fair to say, and my sense is that most people listening would probably have sense, some sense of this, but uh, our culture seems pretty obsessed with this topic, with this issue of identity. Uh, do you think that's true? Do you resonate with that? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, uh, once you tune into it, you see it everywhere. So uh, the, the advice to be true to yourself, to be yourself, is on everyone's lips. Uh, you'll see it uh, uh, from uh, people in the media. You'll see it at uh, President Trump several years ago at his first commencement at Liberty University. Uh, that's how he closed his speech. It's kind of Oprah uh, writ large. It also comes through in some movies. So I, I love the Matt Damon movies. A number of them are about inscrutable characters, really asking, who am I? Mm. Uh, the Born Identity is the most obvious one, but there are right. some others. Uh, there's a show on Netflix at the moment, Inventing Anna, uh, which is all about uh, an inscrutable character. And even after eight episodes, you're still wondering, who is this Anna person? So, so you mentioned the born identity, though, and I think some people might hear that and think, well, that's just a fun action movie about a guy who has amnesia and then he's fighting people. But, but would you say that a movie like that and maybe other movies that you've mentioned as well, that are they kind of tapping into something that you think is bigger than just an interesting premise for a movie? Absolutely, yes. Yes, I think, for, for example, the terms uh, personal identity and identity formation have only been used with any kind of currency in the last 50 years in literature and English. You can do a search of all of that with what's called an engram search, and they, they pop up uh, mid-20th century and just take off from there on. Huh. And and I, I think even in uh, philosophical literature, uh, discussions of ethical quandaries, it all comes down to personal autonomy. And it's not just an individual piece of advice. It's part of a worldview and a package, almost a narrative identity. So it's tied up with what's called expressive individualism. And a number of things go with that. It's not just uh, uh, that you look inside to find yourself, but the highest goal in life becomes your personal happiness. Um, all moral judgments are simply expressions of feeling or personal preference. The key to the good life is really to ex uh, exclude all external authority and uh, pursue your own dreams. The kind of quest for self-expression is to be celebrated. And certain aspects of a personal identity become uh, paramount, uh, things like your gender, your ethnicity, your sexuality. But it's not just those things. It, it's, it's the story that people tap into about finding meaning in life and what drives their lives. And I think um, the, the great irony, though, in our day, of course, is it's never been more important to know who you are. But on the other hand, it's actually also never been more difficult. Uh, people, uh, uh, all sorts of people are wondering, who am I? 
Uh, recently, uh, just last week in Australia, uh, the most famous Australian cricketer, Shane Warne, died at 52 of a heart attack. And there's great mourning in Australia. He's kind, kind of the Babe Ruth, if you like, of Australian cricket. And uh, <laughs> there were dozens of obituaries in the media. And, and one line that really grabbed me was one of his friends said, Shane said to me once, even though I've got everything and I've been so successful, I don't really know who I am. So I think that that really sums up the identity angst, if you like, of our age. There's this weird mm. obsession with personal identity, but on the other hand, it's, it's quite difficult to nail down exactly who you are. There's a great pressure to invent yourself effectively, which, which can lead to all sorts of confusion and anxiety. Yeah. And you mentioned a, a few different, maybe we call them tenets of expressive individualism, and I want to explore some of those in a minute. But I guess one question that someone might have in hearing you explain sort of what that looks like and the, the kinds of questions that people are wrestling with today is, is that really new? You know, is this a new thing? Because it feels like, you know, I know for myself growing up, I'm in my mid-30s, this was sort of what just feels pretty normal, these kinds of questions, these kinds of this angstiness and this, you know, this, the, the, the encouragement to be true to yourself. That feels so normal to me. And so is there something new about this from a historical perspective, or is this kind of more of the same that we've always seen? I, I think there is something that's new that's happened. It's partly in response to what's perceived to be the kind of conformity of the 1950s, all, all the kids sitting in rows, learning rote at school. There's a kind of um, um, uh, oppression of people's individuality. And I, I think there are definitely benefits to what we're calling expressive individualism. So, so mm. one is the idea of personal exploration, self-reflection. Obviously, those are good things. Um, some groups in society being marginalised, uh, that's something we um, must notice and uh, do something about. So that those groups are seeking recognition, affirmation, all sorts of groups. Uh, Francis Fukuyama has a book on identity in which he tries to explain the politics of our day in those terms. And then authenticity, of course, as a moral ideal is perfectly good. You want to yeah. be true to yourself. You want to be comfortable in your own skin. But there, there does seem to be a rise in an obsession with personal identity. And in part, I think that's difficult to notice because it's part of our culture. So some things about you are simply assumed in our culture. Things like your attitude to work, authority, holidays, um, uh, leisure, parenting, problem solving, all of those things are kind of below the surface. Mm. They're just something that you take for granted. If you visit another culture, they're the things you notice and they seem so different. When you come back to your own culture, sometimes you uh, experience what's called um, um, reverse culture shock. And I think personal identity and how you become you, identity formation, is really at the bottom of that iceberg, if you like, of, of, of cultural assumptions. It's something that goes unexamined. We all just take it for granted. Uh, but, but it is quite new. It, it, it's something that Carl Truman, for example, has explored in his book. So Carl looks at the intellectual roots of expressive individualism. Um, my book is attempting to look at the fruit, what, what's it actually producing, and to extend the metaphor, kind of a bit of a dad joke, uh, somewhere else to plant yourself, you might say. <laughs> so and that's, I think it's a good point, that picture of an iceberg where how we view ourselves, how we 
uh, think about our identities is is part of our culture. It's it, our, it's influenced by our culture, but it's so low on the iceberg that it's so deep that we don't we often don't think of it when we think of our culture and the impact that it has on us. Um, and you know, in your book, that sociologists refer to this view of self, this expressive individualistic self, as the buffered self. I wonder if you could unpack that term for us. I, I think most of us, when we think of buffering, we think of Netflix. Um, but what are what are they getting <laughs> a bad out of that? connection? Yep. <laughs> yes. Um, well, the, the alternative to the buffered self uh, for a sociologist is the porous self. So think of um, um, uh, the the edges of something being porous, being permeated. You c- you can move through it. So the buffered self believes that to find yourself, you have to exclude all external authorities. I don't know if you have this phenomenon in the US, but something called a gap year in Australian culture yeah. typifies this. So you finished high school. Uh, you want to move away from family and uh, all of those connections that are stifling you. Go out and find yourself, find your identity in isolation. Most cultures throughout human history and the majority of the world today, traditional cultures in the majority world, have what's called the poorer self. You find yourself or you're found, so to speak, by moving out into your responsibilities in society, but by taking on the roles that have been set for you. The Uh, One sociologist, I love this analogy, put it this way, that uh, in our day, uh, finding yourself is like an ocean. You can go in any direction you like with every wind of change, whereas up until quite recently, even in Western culture, you found yourself in a river. You were taken along in a certain direction, and that might sound stifling and uh, limiting, but but the reality is it, it was another way to be yourself that for for centuries, has been adopted by most cultures around the world and has proven quite successful, you could argue. Mm. So I think one response to that could be, yeah, that approach to the self and all of us kind of finding our place in society was successful for a small group of people within those cultures, kind of the, the those who were at the top, so to speak, of the pyramid there. But that for many, many people, maybe most people, that view of the world and view of the individual in the world led to a lot of oppression and a lot of marginalization and that this kind of new era of self-determination has been what has ushered in a level of freedom and um, independence for people who otherwise would have been to some extent even oppressed. So how, how would you respond to that as you think about these topics? Yeah, so that raises the question of where else to look to find yourself And what you've really tapped into there is this idea that you are your story. So all of us uh, tap into our stories. The story is that which um, uh, makes you as a baby, you now, and you when you're older and die, the same person. So the story typically has a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, to go back to kind of high school English lessons. And the beginning of our story is often before our lives. So even though individual, uh, expressive individualism tells us that you can live your own story, you'll be the hero in your own story, Um, everything uh, will will come together if you live your dream, those kind of ideas which um, are inculcated at high school and beyond, uh, probably even earlier. There's a sense in which we partake in shared stories. We're social beings. Our identities are formed in connection with other people. So we know ourselves by being known by others and by participating in shared stories. Uh, An example of that would be um, a national story. 
So the national story, speaking of my own country, um, determines a lot about my character. So when I watch a sporting contest, I always go for the under, underdog, the, the team that's unlikely to win, unless it's mm. my own team, of course. <laughs> and, and the reason for that, it goes back to the convict settlement in Australia, uh, to the Gallipoli campaign in the First World War that we, um, believe it or not, commemorate, even though it was a terrible loss. Uh, so mm. there's this um, egalitarian nature, mateship, that kind of thing that sets the Australian character. So stories have defining events in the past, a struggle in the present, and uh, some kind of hope for the future. The story that you just described is sometimes thought of as the social justice narrative identity, and it has a lot of legitimacy. And you can see why Christians in particular are attracted to it. It says that discrimination and prejudice are really at the heart of what's wrong with the world. And there are defining events in the past, both good and bad. I mean, the, the terrible murder of George Floyd would be an example of such an event. And there's a struggle in the present. And we divide the world into, as you began to describe it, the, the, the people who are oppressed, those who are oppressing them, and those who are on the side of the oppressed, sometimes called the woke, but I, but I prefer to avoid that term because it's so much a culture war term mm. and, and so divisive. And I, I think that that story makes sense, except it, it really misses a couple of things and it fails to look up. So looking up is also central to personal identity. And obviously, as a Christian believer, I'd say that. But, but I do think there are things about every human being. There are yearnings within the human heart and soul which cannot be satisfied by things on earth, which uh, um, eventually have us look up. Pascal taught, called them yearnings uh, or reasons of the heart. C.S. Lewis um, talked about them in similar terms. And the problem with stories that don't look up is that they're really dead ends. So the social justice narrative identity without looking up gives us an unrealistic view of the human nature. It, it kind of confines human evil to one group when the truth is, if you want to put it that way, that the original diverse and inclusive industry is human evil. All of us are capable of self-interest and of uh, uh, pride and greed and lust and all those things that destroy our community and world. So Christians need to tap into the injustice of the world but uh, it's, it's one of the traps with the social justice narrative identity uh, because you can end up just going along with it and it, it can be divisive in and of itself and it can lead to a sense of entitlement. It can, uh, um, in, in the end, it's a dead-end story. Mm. Well, and you, uh, this connects to one of the, the tenets of expressive individualism that you listed a few minutes ago, namely that the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. And I think maybe even as an American, where we have this, uh, this emphasis on free speech, and we have a history, a story that, that uh, really is focused on this idea of democracy and self-determination as a country, uh, that resonates, that idea that the world will, in, will dramatically improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. That resonates, I think, with us as Americans, and I'm sure with, with you and others around the world as well. So why would you say that's not, uh, that, that story without looking up, as you say, is incomplete and it won't work? Yeah, and I think you've you've mentioned there the, the other big story that many people are living in Western culture. If, if some people are committed to a social justice narrative identity and, and seeking to right the wrongs of the past and to put uh, 
uh, to redress injustice in the present, all of which are necessary and good things, but without looking up, I've suggested they're uh, um, incomplete. I think the other big story is Enlightenment progress, the kind of secular materialism. That That's a story that doesn't look up. So the problem there is constraints on personal freedom. The past turning points are things like the age of reason, the Renaissance. I mean, read Carl Truman basically, for that kind of stuff. The present <laughs> struggle is is progress through technology, through education, and the future hope is really the triumph of enlightenment and reason. Now, the problem with that story is, again, it has an incomplete view of the human being. Um, the, the, really, putting your faith in things like progress, education, technology, science exclusively is to, is to make an idol of them. And, and the Bible's view of idolatry is that it's the worship of gods that fail. It, it's a substituting of the true and living God for a gods that will eventually demean and disappoint you. So the kind of security, significance, satisfaction that all of us seek um, is not to be found ultimately in these gods. So consumerism is, is kind of an outgrowth of that focus on material progress and personal freedom. It, it comes down again to recognizing what a human being is. So we do need to look within ourselves to find ourselves, but there are three other significant directions that we have to look. We look around to others to be known by others. We know ourselves by being known. And we look back and forward to our life stories, which are really shared stories. And then ultimately we look, we look up, which puts a different complexion on all three directions of looking. Hmm. So you mentioned another thing when you were describing expressive individualism that I wanted to, to ask about, because uh, I think it, it comes up in just our experience of our culture today. Uh, that last point was that certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, ethnicity, or sexuality, are of paramount importance. And I think as we look around at the conversations that we're having as a society, uh, those three things, gender, ethnicity, or race, and sexuality are often the locus of the conversation and even disagreement and disunity at times. Why have those identity markers been so prioritized? I think, as I said earlier, that these are genuinely marginalized groups. So these are groups of people who haven't had the recognition from society that they would like to have. Um, having said that, the Bible's take on these things needs to be understood. It doesn't deny that your age, your ethnicity, your gender, and so on will affect your personal identity. But I think one way of saying this is that these are important to who you are, but they're not all important. And to put all your eggs in those baskets is very limiting. It, it, it's just not hard to realize how limiting that is. I mean, how much can you really tell about a person from their age or ethnicity? Um, most of our lives are impacted by all kinds of family histories. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a white man. Um, I, I traditionally, being um, pale, male and stale, uh, would be put in the <laughs> privileged group. As it turns out, I, I've got a mixed background in a sense. My father was an Austrian Jew um, from a, a highly educated background, but, but he missed an education entirely. He was a refugee, moved to Australia and became a Christian um, in hmm. uh, in the late uh, uh, 40s, in, in 1949. Um, on the other hand, and so I grew up in a working-class suburb, six people in the house, one bathroom, a toilet outside. Um, I, I'm not complaining. 
Uh, because on the other hand, I, I had a great... Uh, the value of education really made such a difference to my uh, progress in life. So it's a complicated thing, personal identity, and mm. I think it's simplistic to think that you can tell everything about a person simply by one of those identity markers. You can mm. add other markers to that too, of course, your age, um, uh, your uh, material uh, possessions, um, your class, all of those kind of things. They, they are important to who you are. To deny that would just be naive, but to think they, they, they're the, uh, um, uh, the most important thing about you... It, I think is mistaken. Hmm. So uh, when it comes to Christians and how we think about these topics as believers who, who, who trust the Bible, who, who do uh, believe in the gospel and believe in God as our creator, are there facets to this, we'll call it inward-facing approach to identity that have been corrective, do you think, for Christians? In other words, have there been any benefits to this emphasis that maybe Christians should embrace? Well, it, it, the expressive individualist mindset has raised, as we've discussed, um, certain aspects of injustice in society, and they're, they're things we should take notice of. Mm. Um, I actually think the, the main benefits of expressive individualism, kind of inclusion, authenticity, self-reflection, are there in the Christian faith. And, and my advice to pastors, evangelists, and so on would be to play on the expressive individualist board. We need to say to people, yes, you need to be authentic. You need to be true to yourself, but true to your new self in Christ. One of the wonderful things about the Bible is it seems to address contemporary issues in ways that are incredibly true and helpful that we haven't even noticed before. There's a wealth of material in the Bible about personal identity that hasn't mm. been important in Western culture, at least, for hundreds of years, and now it's coming to the fore. I'm not the only person to have noticed this. Um, it, it, it's uh, incredibly uh, beneficial. So my own story um, was one of an identity crisis of sorts in the mid-'90s. Then I turned back to the Bible and found the theme of being known by God uh, being uh, uh, of great comfort and giving me a stable and uh, satisfying sense of self. Hmm. So you say that the Bible does speak a lot about identity, and, and it does. I'm sure all of us are thinking about different passages that speak to who we are as people, as humans, as Christians, and yet it seems like the Bible is uh, pretty... The, the ringing emphasis in the Bible is is that our identity is given to us. It's determined by, ultimately, God. And that does feel like it's very much out of sync with the dominant secular voices in our cultures today. So I wonder, do you think that from an apologetic standpoint, in some ways it's harder for us to be proclaiming this biblical worldview and message because uh, people are so predisposed to want to be able to create their own identities and they're resistant to this kind of externally imposed identity from God? I think as Christians, uh, as faithful Christians have attempted to do throughout the ages, we need to contextualise how we present the gospel. It's the same message, but there are different ways of expressing it. Um, there are all sorts of passages that are good at exposing the dead-end stories to which people subscribe, and a better story. We, we need to be presenting and embodying a better story around which to form your identity. I mean, one passage, for example, would be uh, Colossians 3, uh, where Paul says this remarkable thing. He says that you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life story, appears, 
you will appear with him in glory. So you have right there, in a, in the nutshell, if you like, the uh, life story, the narrative identity of the people of God. The, the defining moment for us as Christians is not something that happened in our lifetime. It's the fact that we died with Christ to self-interest. And the defining destiny for the Christian is also tied up with the Lord Jesus. Now, mm. to say that our identity is a gift is not the last thing to say, because Colossians 3 then goes on to say, you've got to put on this new identity. You've got to live it and living the gospel, behaving in ways consistent with that identity. Being true to yourself, if you like, is really the task of the Christian life. Sanctification mm. is all about knowing who you are in Christ and behaving accordingly, um, dressing accordingly, to use the language of Colossians 3, taking off the old clothes of deceit and self-deception and like and the like, and putting on the new clothes, which are summed up with the word love. Is this message, this vision of the Bible's view of identity, a message that Christians need to hear afresh? Like, do you think this is, uh, is there a widespread understanding of this in the church, or do you see more uh, Christians being influenced by, you know, a secular form of expressive individualism and kind of needing to recapture a biblical vision? Christians in every age are tempted to be worldly. What, what we're just talking about is the problem for every Christian in any culture. Basically, we're influenced by the culture around us. Um, Paul calls it the world. So we're not to conform to the world, but to be transformed, interestingly, by the renewing of your mind, thinking differently. There are only a few ways, really, to critique your culture. One is, as I mentioned earlier, to travel overseas to a different culture and then come back. Another is to read history, read Carl Truman's book, if you can get through it. Uh, but the other is to join a subculture. So the churches need to be subcultures which have a different way of doing identity. All the elements mm. are there. The Christian service of worship is all about our identity in Christ. If you think about baptism, it it's depicts the fact that we die with Christ and rise with him and will return and be seen as uh, children of God when he is revealed as the true son of God. Uh, the Bible is all about the knowledge of God, but it's also about the knowledge of us. It's like a mirror. We can look into the Bible and see ourselves in a new light. Singing is an expression of our identity as belonging to a new age. Uh, we could go on and on. So I think those elements are there. Uh, I think it'd be really helpful if uh, Christian workers and pastors recognize the culture in which we're living which is obsessed mm. with personal identity and brought the, the incredible resources that are available to us in the scriptures, in liturgy and in other places mm. um, to bear on the subject, to give people a sense of self that they can live. I mean, we, we could talk about uh, the, the, what really keeps me going as a Christian is other Christians. And I don't mean the ones in the headlines. I mean, the ordinary Christians who are living according to this life story of Jesus Christ's script, who are living sacrificially, generously, with kindness, and so on. Uh, mm. They don't even realize sometimes, but they're living the life story of Jesus Christ. Once you see that, you'll see it everywhere throughout the New Testament. Mm. Well, you just said a minute ago that the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, has all of the tools that we need uh, to to cultivate this cultural identity that we should have as Christians. And yet, I think as many of us look around at the church today, the evangelical church, maybe maybe particularly in the U.S., but I think around the world to some extent, we do see a lot of division, and a lot of division 
along some of these uh, identity markers that we've already been discussing that aren't explicitly Christian. And so I wonder how you would respond to that. Are we missing something as we look around and see all of that division? My main response is uh, one of despair, to be honest. It, 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 I don't think I have an answer that's easily expressed, and it, it's just silly for me to pretend that I know the answer. Mm. I, th- I think people need to be self-reflective about where their true allegiance lies. So many people, so many Christians I find are so rusted on to one political viewpoint or another, it seems like they're worshipping Caesar rather than the Lord Jesus. That's just one thing to say. Mm. Uh, and I, I think getting back to what we talked about earlier, we need to um, present the gospel in ways that meet the felt and real needs that people have. I mean, the idea of belonging to yourself sounds great, but in the end, it's not. And, mm. and, and Paul puts it beautifully. He says, you are not your own. And, and that sounds really dangerous. If I don't belong to myself, what, what's it going to be like? What, but he goes on to say, you were bought with a price. So we were loved with an everlasting love. And that's the real way to find and be yourself in relationship with someone who knows and loves you truly. The Lord Jesus says, the one who um, seeks to find themselves will lose themselves. The one who will um, uh, lose themselves for my sake will find themselves. Mm. Um, um, uh, Tim Keller has a a lovely little book called The the Joy, I think it's called The The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. So I think the Such church needs it, it. Yeah, it's just a tiny book, and I, I don't. I don't think many people know about it. I'm glad to hear you do, Matt. So yeah, so I, I think that that comes to the heart of uh, Christian faith, and it, it's a great paradox, really, that uh, the people who focus so intently on finding themselves will lose themselves, and the people who lose themselves in the service of Jesus Christ and others will eventually find themselves. It, it, it's it's um, a, a wonderful irony, if you like. Mm. So what does it look like for a Christian to to pursue identifying ourselves first and foremost in Christ, in what he has said about us as redeemed, regenerated people, and yet not denigrate the other uh, identity markers that, that factor into who we are, you know, and how we, how we are relating to other people in this world. How do we kind of hold both of those together rather than going so extreme in either direction? Yeah. Uh, as I said earlier, it's not that these other identity markers are unimportant. So so I'm a father, um, I'm a friend, uh, I'm, I'm a son. Um, being in Christ, living the life story of Jesus Christ will affect the type of father, son, and friend I will be. So it, it does end up coloring who I am. It's not like we lose, lose our particularity, our individuality, by finding ourselves in Christ. On the contrary, we find our true selves. That's, that's what Jesus said. So the, there are obviously very important things about me uh, that should be explored, finding my, my talents, my gifts, my likes, and so on. But to think that once I've found them, I should just celebrate them and, and, and not... Um, um, deal with some of them, which which are not helpful, is 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 naive at best. Mm. What what are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing pastors making when they try to engage with these issues of identity in the church? Well, I'm I was tempted in my first write of the book to make one of those mistakes, mm. and that is just to be a cranky 
cranky old man and uh, to complain about uh, younger generations and to say that, you know, they're, 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 they're snowflakes and all that kind of thing and they're not all exceptional, uh, they're just ordinary, uh, I think that's a big mistake. Uh, we need to try and uh, live in the shoes of uh, different generations. So, so pastors need the help of, of younger people, of women, of other people who, uh, who are not exactly like them to understand where they're coming from. And this, this is one of the remarkable things about the New Testament. The New Testament is incredibly contextualized. So when you look at Paul's letters, his letters are quite different. He writes to Corinth about uh, spirituality and wisdom. He doesn't talk about those things very much anywhere else. And he, he writes to uh, the church in Ephesus about power and authority. And again, that's not the emphasis in many of his letters. And the reason is they were the things that people were struggling with. I mean, John Stott said it very simply decades ago that the Christian minister needs to exegete both the Bible and his culture or mm -hmm. her culture and to see their culture um, as being addressed by the Bible, sometimes affirming it, sometimes critiquing it, sometimes replacing it. Hmm. So then very practically, uh, speaking to the Christian listening right now who's, who's maybe thinking to him or herself, all right, I, I, can, I can sense the ways that my view of myself has been so influenced by this cultural air that we're breathing uh, altogether, and I want to have a distinctly Christian view of myself and, and let that inform all these things that I'm doing and saying in my relationships. What would be like a practical thing that a person could do that you think would kind of help help to reset their thinking, rewire their brain, so to speak, along those lines? Well, there's some good books they could read. That would be a start. Um, the other thing to do, and, and, and this sounds uh, just as simplistic, is, is to go to church, read the Bible, pray, and try and live the Christian life. Mm. I mean, it's as basic as that. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is said by tens of millions of people around the world uh, frequently, is actually a critique of expressive individualism. So our Father in heaven, it, it, it's, it's, it's already a social... Um, uh, it, it admits our social selves by mm, praying yeah. with that plural pronoun. Your will be done, not mine. So, so uh, give us this day our daily bread, rather than trying to gather all the possessions I can to 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 live the dream. Um, help me to be content with with what I have. So, I think um, that those simple things would be. Uh, as far as I can go in a few moments mm. with the advice. The other thing to say is I, I, I need the help, as you do, of um, ministers who are good at, at culture, who understand the culture, who are this kind of age and demographic of the people we're speaking with. So we shouldn't pretend that we have all the answers. And um, uh, uh, my exploration of the topic of personal identity came from, as I mentioned, a, a crisis of identity of my own, and in part from... Um, being confused and confronted by our culture's take on identity, but wh whenever you write a book, it it the, it's a real it's a ruse to say it's a single authored book. It, it, this is the kind of book I've been working on for 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 twenty five years. It and this is one of the luxuries of being a professor or lecturer in a in a Bible college. You can think about the same thing forever and ever. Chew, uh, chew on the same bone. So talking to other people. Being honest about our struggles, 
um, asking the tough questions of each other, all of those things. You know, why, why do I need the latest iPhone? Why do I need a holiday house if I could afford such a thing? Why, why do I need a new car? Um, uh, that That's part of the consumerist thing. Um, what, what are my expectations in life? The reality is that human history says that every life is marked by hardship, struggle, disappointment. And to think that I'm going to live the dream, which is the message coming from every direction in our society, is, is just so unhelpful. So I think Christians need, need each other and we need to take uh, full use of the resources available to us by God's grace. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about this, about this air that we are all breathing, but nevertheless can uh, can resist in our own thinking, and uh, we really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure. That was Brian Rosner on our culture's obsession with personal identity. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content visit us today at crossway.org.